Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Commitment Matters. Well, many of you said your favorite guest so far has been Dr. Ted Jones, so we invited him back to give you an update on just what the heck is going on with the economy. Now, of course, he specializes in the real estate economy, and we definitely talk about that. But one of my favorite things about Dr. Ted is that he pulls in data points from all over the greater economy and brings them to us in such a way that we can easily see how many things collide and combine to create a full picture of an entire economic reality. When Dr. Ted was last with us, which, if you missed it, was back on June 22nd of last year, and you can go back in your podcast feed and find it if you'd like to listen. Well, back then, he noted two possible wild cards that could throw predictions off track. Those two things were lasting inflation and some sort of war. Turns out we got them both, and as he warned, both are wreaking their havoc out there. So once again, fasten your seatbelts. We're going on a wild economic ride today. So much so that we decided to split Dr. Ted's visit into two episodes. Our discussion is rich and it is dense. So we wanted you to have time to really soak up the material and really think about how it impacts your business and your life decisions. Just a few of the topics we cover are inflation and the Russian war, our federal debt, energy prices, the increase in U.S. home ownership rates, housing prices, cryptocurrency, interest rates, refis, the supply chain, and building new housing inventory, commercial real estate, and of course, run transactions. I always enjoy a vigorous conversation with Dr. Ted, and I always leave those conversations feeling a little more empowered to handle what lies ahead. We hope you do too. So please enjoy my conversation with the remarkable Dr. Ted Jones. Dr. Ted, thanks and welcome back to Commitment Matters. You are one of our listeners' favorite guests, and I know there's a lot going on with economic matters right now, so we're thrilled to have you back on the podcast. Honored to be back, guys. You know, new economy every day, and the world is changing as we see in front of us right now. (laughs) Yeah, in front of us right now. Well, I kind of wanted to start with that. I know it's outside of housing a little bit, but everything influences everything. There's a little bit going on in the globe right now much of it with economic impact. So let's start out there in the world. What what do you see? What's going on? You know, I think the biggest concern that we all have right now is inflation. And the big question is, is it short term? Is it long term? You talk to the president, his troops, they'll tell you it's very short term. You talk to other people, they'll say it's very long term. I think it's very long term. I think it's a couple of years in the building. I actually think that the American Rescue Plan a little over a year ago really contributed to this rate of inflation. Our inflation right now at the consumer level is 7.5%. At the wholesale level, it's 9.7%. And go back a year ago when the American Rescue Plan was passed, and we know it wasn't needed for the majority of people because 57% of Gen Zs and millennials bought either cyber currency or stocks with it. And if you really needed it, you paid your rent with it, you paid your credit cards with it, you didn't invest it in those really volatile assets. So uh, I think that we're, we're going to be living with that for a while, unfortunately. And right now, we're looking at people not making, well, roughly about 5% more than a year ago. And if, if inflation is between that 75 and 9.7%, that means we're losing money every day. Losing ground, right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. The American Rescue Plan was not means tested. I, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. 
uh, I guess because they were concerned about how long that would take to do the means testing and they just wanted to get it out there. And then I'd like to back up a step further and ask, there is a school of thought that said at the 2008 crisis, we didn't do enough. We, we were supposed to go big or go home. We didn't go big enough. This is a school of thought. I'm interested to see if you agree or disagree. So they thought, well, this time we're going to go bigger to make sure we don't fall short. And what happened? They sort of went past the mark and ended up overheating and supercharging. Those are some thoughts I've heard. I'd like to hear yours. So, yeah, we didn't do hardly anything in 2008. We saw people lose their lifelong fortunes, middle class in particular, when they lost their homes. But my speech topic this year is called Econ 101. It's all about supply and demand. Now, think about this. Let's go back to 08. And then we'll actually, we're going to do 2004, 5, 6, 7. People bought homes just to sell to someone for more money. In fact, when you bought a home then, well, in fact, at university, when I was prof, we used to call it the bigger sucker doctrine. One sucker would pay too much in hopes that a bigger sucker would come along and pay more. There was a lot of that going on then too. There was a lot of that going on. And now, on the other hand, you buy a home either to live in it or to rent it. And so it's completely different. This is an amazing statistic. Think about this supply and demand of housing, because we're going we're gonna to talk way too much about housing today, but that's good. I've always thought you needed between one and a quarter and one and a half new jobs per new dwelling unit. Dwelling unit could be an apartment, a condo, half of a duplex. It could be a, a mansion or a house. Between 2010 and 2019, and I'm, I'm going to ignore 2020 data completely because it was an anomaly. This pandemic, biggest change in our lives. We'll talk about that in a second. But if you go from 2010 to 2019, that's 10 years. We added about 10.5 million net new dwelling units. We also added over 22.1 million net new jobs, which means instead of having one and a quarter to one and a half new jobs per new dwelling unit, we literally had 2.11. We literally entered 2020 short between 4.2 and 7.2 million dwelling units. And remember, you go back to 2007 and 8, 2007 in particular, home prices exploded upwards. Rents did not. That's right. In this scenario, we see both rents rising dramatically. and In many cities, rents are rising much quicker than housing because a lot of people are being priced out of housing right now on the affordability side because of the massive increase uh, in, in home prices. Interest rates, another thing that's kind of intriguing, Freddie Mac just announced that 30-year conventional fixed rate mortgages last week dropped at 3.76%, down from almost 4%. But that's almost a full 100 basis points, a full percentage above a year ago, almost not quite still. But then you couple that with the massive increase in homes. Oh, and then add this on the affordability. This will just blow you away. Let's, we know what the median price was in 2020. We know what the average mortgage rate, 30-year conventional mortgage rate in 2020. So let's fast forward. If Fannie Mae's correct, and you're going to buy the, the, the median-priced home in 2023, you put 20% down, compared to doing that same thing in 2020, your monthly principal interest will be 43% greater. If the Mortgage Bankers Association are correct, your monthly principal interest payment will be 48% more than it was in 2020. Man, that's priced a lot of people out of the market. And that's one of my big concerns, and not for the reason you think. And this is not self-centered concern. My concern is the average middle-class family, their largest store of wealth is their home. If you can't buy that first home, you don't get to play that game. 
talk about money. I had a professor at Texas A&M, fellow professor years ago. He always said that if you get a raise, you're simply broke at a higher level. <laughs> and I love that line. That's a good one. I love that line. And, and uh, can I get this one? And this is why we're having inflation right now. Compared to February of 2020, our consumers today have four, excuse me, $2.7 trillion more in their wallets, their purses, their pocketbooks, under their mattress and in their bank. And uh, I learned this when I was 10 years old. If you got money in your pocket, you spend it. And that's why we see inflation is because demand is outstripping supply. Well, and I remember, too, the summer of 2008, and I don't want to spend an entire episode on the history of 2008. Most of us lived it. But I remember a big catalyst. We knew those resets were coming on those arms. But I think another horrible factor was the price of gas that summer was through the roof and people were having to already make a choice of whether to fill up their SUV or pay their mortgage. And then their mortgage rates started to adjust and it was all this cascading effect. And I think as we look at what's going on internationally and with Russia and Ukraine, the pinch on energy that's coming there, some of the domestic energy policy changes are keeping that at least for now, that energy price high, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. How is that, has that already affected or is it going to begin to affect people's ability to make their mortgage payments, those who have been able to get into the housing market? You bet. High energy costs. You think about it. After you purchase your home and basically pay your property taxes, your energy bill is your next biggest expense. And if you barely qualified for your loan, and we're seeing energy prices quite literally double from 12 months ago, then people are going to be really challenged to make their bill payments. And this is utter insanity because let's go back three, four years ago. We were not only energy independent, we were net energy exporters. Now, the other factor about that is this new environmental ESG thing. It's got to be green. It's got to be environmental. It's got to be politically correct stuff. And we're even seeing some drillers saying, why would I drill today knowing that you might impose other sanctions on me tomorrow? It's that uncertainty that we talk about all the time, right? Yes. And so it's keeping them out of the market. Even with this high oil prices today, you're not going to get them to drill because they have no guarantee that they'll get the expected returns or need to make that investment. Then the the supply chain issues when it comes to we have a shortage in inventory, prices are high. But we're not seeing new construction able to catch up, right? Because of the supply chain, the lumber prices are going all over. So I'd love to just sit back and hear your thoughts about how all that gets sorted out or what we'll experience in the meantime or both. Well, all right. So our lumber prices, depending on the cut of lumber that there is, and we're talking softwood framing materials, predominantly for housing, it's up between 200 and 300% where you're at in America since the month before the pandemic. And then now let's add some more insanity. Last November, our government doubled the tariffs. They went from 9% to 17.9% and imported Canadian softwoods. And what's disgusting is no news service even reported that. Right. And so you talk about an industry that has some issues, builders. Zonda has a lot index. They've been, I think, calculated since 1989. It's the shortest, smallest, shortest inventory of new lot availability for builders since they started this index. Then you throw in things like materials costs, and not just materials costs, but simple availability. 
I hope you haven't had to do this because I've had to do two appliances since this pandemic started out. First was a washing machine. It took three months to get a new washing machine. And it wasn't like I was bought a Boss washing machine from Germany. This is a Speed Queen from Wisconsin. And of course, when you buy a new washing machine, you buy a new dryer. That took three months. And then our cut top went out about six months ago. So when we went down to get a new one and my wife found one she wanted, it was great. And then the lady said, it'll be here. I think in about four months, maybe six months. And my wife says, what do you mean? And, and then the lady said to her, just feel lucky you're not ordering Sub-Zero products because Sub-Zero is now quoting a 12 to 14 month delivery time. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I've got a great picture. $4.8 million new speculative, beautiful home. And where that Sub-Zero is going to go in the wall, this my friend sent me this picture, sits a used Kenmore washing machine, kind of as placeholder. Man, you you talk about tough stuff. And then not just availability, but who are you going to get to build this stuff? Every electrician, every plumber, every roofing crew, they're they're busy. They're booked up. Our builders probably have the biggest headwind of anyone we're seeing right now. Yeah. And I'm not sure how long it takes us to work our way out of that. But without that additional supply, where does the demand go? Do people just buckle in and refi that want to move? I mean, where do you see us finding equilibrium? Go back to that econ one-on-one deal. We're either going to increase supply or decrease demand. If we had another major recession, that would dramatically reduce demand. And you hope that doesn't happen. Uh, You hope that we would build our way out of this on the supply side. But right now, you can't do that with the material shortages. So uh, right now, we're just going to be continue in a short state until we see the next economic downturn. And, and that's tragic to say that's not a comfortable solution to have, but right. that's, that's where we're at right now. This is not the roaring 20s that we hoped we would have coming out of this pandemic, is it? I mean, the, the appetite's there, the demand's there, but what, what do you do with that appetite? That's another thing, too. The president's proposed his Build Back Better program. So let's just, let's say he gets to do that and what form he wants. Well, all those require workers, Everyone's employed that has a skill set already. So how do you get them to come do those jobs? You offer them more money, which in turn would be more inflationary. It's, it's kind of dog t- chasing its own tail type logic. Yeah, it sure is. Well, and not to, to bring our audience too low with distress and depression, but I noticed the other day you made mention that our federal debt is greater than 30 trillion now, which is, I think, more importantly than that number itself, what, 119% of our GDP? And I know you have thoughts about that. So (laughs) what? (laughs) I'm really not worried about our debt in our government right now. What I'm worried about is that interest rate going up on our existing debt. Today, the 10-year treasury is in that 1.8% range. We're borrowing money at 1.8%. But what happens when, and we all can remember if we go back to the, literally just go back to 1982, when we saw 30-year residential mortgages at above 17%, 30-year treasuries greater than 17%. And so they say that for every percentage point that interest rates on the federal debt go up, it costs you about $200 billion or more in interest payments just to pay interest on the current debt. So let's just run this out. We go from 1.8% to 6.8%. That means we have, and by the way, to make our interest payment on our debt today, we actually have to borrow it because we don't have that money to pay it. 
That means we'd be borrowing another trillion dollars a year just to pay the interest on the debt. And that's a snowball that ought to scare everyone else out. But, you know, you look at our assets. We, we're a rich country. We got, we got great people. We have lots of assets. What are, what are our, what's our highway system worth? What's our airports worth across the United States? They all have value, but I don't think we're going to sell those. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hope not. Hope not. Hope not, too. Yeah. So where do you, where does this, the slack come in? If we can't build our way out into robustness, are we going to just really have to endure sort of more inflation in the recession? And if so, what do you forecast that? That could look like. Let's talk commercial real estate real quick because okay, yes. there's one word that just sends chills up everyone's neck and down their back and down their spine in commercial real estate is stagflation. Stagflation. Yeah. So, you know, and, and of course, the deal there is you know, the stagnant economy means that we don't need as much real estate as you used to have. And we'll talk about offices right now. Yeah. The inflationary thing, what you do is you lose tenants. And then you have to pay more for everything, whether it's your landscaping or your elevator maintenance or anything else like that, the housekeeping, the repairs. That really is a kiss of death for commercial real estate. If we were to go into stagflation right now, it would be really ugly because while we, we protected ourselves on the housing side, at least uh, not allowing anyone to be evicted from their homes for not paying their rent or paying their mortgages for all that time. Uh, I don't think we're going to do the same for commercial real estate. That, that appetite's not there, particularly in the current administration and the current House and Senate. So, so now think about this. Every time there's change, big change, there's winners and losers. And right now, the big winner in the U.S. has been housing. And right now, the big winner in commercial real estate has been industrial properties and it's been apart- apartments. Big losers have been retail and offices, a huge. Yeah, I live in Houston. I don't know who you want to believe on this, but we're at least a third vacant of all office space in Houston, Texas. Fourth largest city in the country. We're already a third vacant. One of my tweets uh, from last year, y'all need to follow me on Twitter. One of the studies said they surveyed all these people that are working from home. And they said, uh, would you be willing to take a uh, pay cut to work from continue working from home? And 46% of Americans said yes. And, and in fact, 35% of Americans said if they're forced to go back to the office, they'll find another job. Every week, Castle Security, Castle Systems, there's those little white cards that get you in and out of your office buildings. They're one of the major security firms across the United States. Every week, they do a great big report, top 10 metros in the U.S., Last week, only two metros in the U.S. had at least half their workers in their office buildings. Only two. Only two. One of them was Austin and one of them was Houston. And everyone else, was some of them were down in the 30% range, San Francisco, that no one has an appetite to go back to work evidently. But amazing things. And all that says is we got a lot of empty offices. We're going to have to be very creative in how we're going to repurpose those properties, whether they become apartments. Yeah, that's an avenue we can go down. Whether they become, we just saw one on the East Coast. It was converted, major high-rise office building was converted to kind of the major cities testing labs. They all decided to go there. Uh, we're going to see a lot of adaptive uses. Shopping centers, we're already seeing, for example, Amazon and Google. They've repurposed uh, either all or parts of 38 major super regional shopping centers. Another one we saw, it's under conversion right now. A hospital has bought half of a super regional shopping center. 
in the first floor is going to be their clinics and they've got some retail space, restaurants, pharmacies, drugstores, that type thing. The next level up is their day surgery and treatment and uh, where they do uh, physical therapy and everything else like that. Next floor up is their laboratory space and the very top floor in the super regional shopping centers administrative space. We've seen university combined with the local community college and take out a super regional shopping center. One of the big rooms is now the cafeteria with the big boxes at the end, one of the lead, you know, the old anchor tenants. Yeah. And so we're going to continue to see some adaptive use with this stuff more and more and more. That's really interesting. Plus, if they kept the carousel or the ice skating rink, I mean, the trip to the doctor's office could be a lot more fun that way. (laughs) (laughs) And the food court and the food court, too. That's right. That's right. That's right. True. Hey, you mentioned industrial a little bit ago. So with the infrastructure bill, which is its own thing, but regardless of whether or not Build Back Better passes in its the form that's desired by the administration, uh, you know, there is still seems to be this emphasis, and I think we're all for it, for bringing some manufacturing back into the U.S. Do we have those industrial spaces sitting idle? Are we going to have to simply rehab or are we going to have to build more? Do you really think that's going to happen? I think a lot of people are really hoping it does, but we don't see a lot of practical movement on it yet. So what are your thoughts? Here's your problem. If I agree, if I agree with your assumptions, I agree with your conclusions, but I don't agree with your assumptions. Okay. Let's go back to Build Back Better. They're going to finance Build Back Better with increased corporate taxes and, high, and income taxes on high-income individuals, which means we're going to be given an excuse to continue to offshore in our manufacturing. If you do pursue that and fund Build Back Better through higher taxes, that'll actually impede that. We'll continue to offshore some of those those, those functions. And, and offshoring, you know, we, we've gone, I can remember when everything was made in uh, Hong Kong and Taiwan when I was a little kid, and now it's made in China. The next one's may well deep, indeed be made in India, made in Africa, because as countries develop and they become more affluent, then it costs more and more and more. And you just go down that next low rung, least common denominator, and I think we'll we'll even see some manufacturing depart China eventually if we live long enough. I have heard that speculated as well, and that India seems to be the next place prime to to handle all that and becomes one of the next big superpowers. They got a population that's massive, it's well over a billion people, and makes us look pretty small and, and pale in comparison. All right, to spend a little bit more time on housing, simply because that's where we all live and, and eat. So our homeownership rates have increased. At the same time, our housing prizes are the highest in what, 34, 35 years? Highest ever. Highest ever. Yes. So how do those things continue to work in tandem or do they diverge at some point? What, what are you calling for the future on that? Well, they diverge and we're seeing a lot more renters now. Uh, and that's going to be the trend. As I mentioned earlier, we just don't see that entry level home buyer. This is a scary statistic, this next one. There was a survey done by Redfin, and they asked, uh, where did you get your down payment money? 52% of millennials and Gen Z said that the first-time homebuyers said they got it from savings of their paycheck. Fair enough. 24% got that from their stimulus payments. We're not going to have any more stimulus payments. That means what happened a year ago, one out of four people were increasing their down payment via stimulus. That's not going to happen again. I will assure you of that. And uh, and, and here's kind of proof on this one. 
we we looked at it like I told you. Most over half of millennials and Gen Zs last year on their latest stimulus payment use that, like I said, to buy cryptocurrency or, or stocks, which means they didn't need it. So now they don't even have that money to do that. Uh, so I think our big thing is, and this we're seeing this right now across America today. Just three years ago, majority of cities, well over seventy percent, it was cheaper to own than rent. That has now flipped exactly opposite. In about seventy percent of cities now, it's cheaper to rent than own. And so uh, we're, we're you know we're kind of diverging from that that great American plan of. <laughs> own a home and be rich and all that kind of stuff. That's not going to happen as much. Uh, that's a little concern too. So I, I think that we're, we're, well, that's also why, you know, we'll may as well talk about apartments while we're here. Last year, we sold more total commercial real estate in the United States than any year in history. That's $790 billion. Half of that, almost half of that was apartments, $322 billion. We've never sold that many apartments. And, and the apartments used to run 30% of the total commercial sales. When they're running half, it tells you it's kind of the select primary destination. And that all goes back to that Econ 101. When, you, when you're actually getting a lot more new jobs and new houses, you've got a shortfall in housing. Now, what happened in the pandemic, we spent more time in our homes than any time in history for our generations. And that means where you lived impact your quality of life and your lifestyle more than it ever has. And therefore, you wanted to live in a nice place. And that's one of the reasons we saw people move out of apartments to nicer apartments. One of the other tweets from a couple of weeks ago, they surveyed uh, people, over 200,000 apartment dwellers. They said, are you going to move this year? About one in four said yes. Of those that are going to move, 49% wanted to move to a more affordable apartment. But listen to me, at 29% said they wanted more amenities, 28% wanted bigger apartments. That's why our burbs, our suburbs are blowing and going right now, because the only way you can get a bigger place with better amenities for less money is the burbs, the suburbs. And so we're seeing you know, our predominant growth. Just, just look, for example, at United Van Lines. Man, of the top 20 cities, only two of them were really had more than a million jobs, Salt Lake City and, and uh, Tampa, Austin. And, and everyone, all the other 17, what we call them secondary or tertiary cities, very, very small places like Fort Myers, Cape Coral, those type of things. And that's going after those core functions that of renters, a lot of that. And of course, Texas was the number one inbound destination as a percentage of total trucks coming inbound for U-Haul. And there's a difference between people that you use moving companies. Usually people that use moving companies are either corporate relocations, they're higher income individuals, or they're old geezers like me. And who uses a U-Haul? Well, that's young, younger. A lot of them are moving there even without a new job yet. They're just going to change their lives. And so what we're seeing in Texas, for example, at this point in time is a large influx of very young people. Florida is seeing the same. Used to be, it was old people moving to Florida and they didn't live that long. They were already at the peak of their career. It was a lot of turn. I was in Florida all last week speaking to seven different cities and uh, talking to an individual, kind of intriguing, young person that just moved in. And I said, so why did you pick Florida? He said, when I was a kid, his grandparents were from the Midwest and grandparents had farmed, I think it was Iowa, uh, their whole lives. And so in the wintertime, they were kind of snowbirds in Florida. 
And of course, he'd go see him at Christmas when he was 10 years old. He'd go see him in the summertime. And his grandfather said, you know, you too could save up money. So when you retire, you can live here. And he decided, why do I want to save up to live there when I'm almost dead? Why don't I move there now? And he did. And I think that's a trend we're seeing across the country also. Okay, well, here's a question I've had for a while, and it's just been brought more clear into view as a question for me. As we look at, we're basically at full employment. As we look at people are once again having a hard time borrowing the stimulus money, getting a down payment. Many people in apartments have an aspiration of of moving out of apartments, but to a better apartment as opposed to taking that initial home ownership step is are we close to the point where we're in more of a an adolescent to middle-aged country to where we're going to start looking like and experiencing more like what some of the older countries do which is if you're born into a family that owns real property good for you you can inherit it but you're probably not going to be able to strike out on your own and, and start your own or do you think we're a ways off from that i'm just looking at the mechanics and some of the things that have been traditionally true for i'm using your quotes upward mobility into real property ownership for an individual is that still going to be attainable for first time buyers for a while or are we starting to is that ground starting to get a little shaky so real quick on this one, um, and th- this is why I'm not going to write off first-time homebuyers completely. Granted, we, we expect interest rates to continue to go up. The only reason that interest rates dropped last week was a global flight to quality. People want to own treasuries because that's a secure, risk-free investment as you can ever own. So that's, that's just a little anomaly right now. But I expect rates, I, I think we'll see the mid 4.5% range this year, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if one week Freddie Mac's weekly survey said it was uh, 5%. But we have been spoiled with the lowest interest rates in history, number one. Number two, uh, everyone was getting 30-year fixed rate loans. Now, unlike 05, 06, and 07, when we had all those just rate mortgages come out, we have a new mortgage that both Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will purchase. It's the five-year hybrid. And what it is, it's fixed interest rates for five years. It can then only go up 1% per year maximum. And since most people are staying in their homes five, six, seven years, that's a brilliant mortgage to get into it. And those rates are the same as they were a year ago on the 30-year fixed rate loans. So you can still get some very cheap money out there. Oh, and I'll, I'll just throw this tidbit out there for anyone. If you want to invest some money, I can get you an investment right now that yields 7.12%, and it's a treasury. It's called the I-bond, the inflation-adjusted I-bond. You buy it from Treasury Direct. They, twice, a, twice a year, they reprice it based on what inflation is. Uh, so technically, if inflation went to zero, you would get zero return. On the other hand, right now, at least through May, and they'll adjust it again, then six months later, adjust again, it's 7.12% effective. There's a few little gotchas on it. You can only buy $10,000 per Social Security number per year. That's part of it. And if you cash it out before three years, you're going to lose some of your interest, accumulated interest. But if you're looking for a place to just protect some money that you won't need for three years, man, I can't tell you, run to Treasury, Treasury Direct, buy them from the federal government and buy some of those. And think about this. Just don't buy them for yourself. Your spouse is going to other. They can buy one. You got to buy them for your grandkids for their college accounts because that your inflation proofing not going to get a big yield. But right now, instead of losing you know, 5, 6, 7% per year on inflation, that's pretty doggone good. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, see, that's a great pro tip. Speaking of investments, you mentioned the C word, the crypto word. Please give us your thoughts on that because we have a lot of title companies, you know, people are either into it personally or they're not, but we do have a lot of title companies asking about, should they take it? If they take it, how they take it, how they convert it. We have a few in the space that are doing it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about the whole kettle of fish. Well, I'll just back up and I'll tell you what I forecast last July. And I said, in the next two to three years, I expected the stock market to drop between 15 and 30%. We're over halfway there right now, by the way. And I expect that the total value of the cryptocurrency markets to drop by 80%. There will be some survivors. But on the other hand, you can't touch it. It's like these, these, these tokens, these, you know, non, yeah, those NFTs. NFTs, yeah. Yeah, I, that's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. It's insanity. And this is what happens when you have too much money chasing too few things. And you go these right now, without question, some people have made fortunes in crypto and other people will make fortunes. And a lot of people are going to lose their fortunes, I'm afraid. So I'm, a, I'm not a fan. I will tell you that we are title insurance. We are in the, the business of eliminating risk. If we did normal property and casualty type insurance when title insurance, where instead of eliminating the risk, we just closed the deals and tried to pay the, the claims, we'd be bankrupt in heartbeat. Whole industry. We are a risk elimination business. And the second you start taking crypto as a payment, you're in a super high risk business. And I don't think those two are associated at all. Got it. Okay. Refis. What do you see? Well, uh, I'm going to kind of agree with uh, Fannie Mae and the NBA. Fannie Mae says refis this year go down about 51% compared to last year. NBA says, nope, goes down about 63%, another 10% next year. As interest rates rise, refis go away. Not completely. There's still some people that will refinance at a higher rate just for cash flow. We understand that. Use that house as an ATM machine, so to speak. But uh, refis are shrinking. And to put this in simple perspective, we had some lenders last year and some title companies that eight out of 10 of their closings were refis. All right, so let's say you had 10 mortgage officers. You had 10 last year. This year, you only need six or seven. Next year, you only need five or six. So we're going to literally see the mortgage lending business, as far as loan officers, shrink by approximately 50% in the next two, three years. It's tough. It's tough. But on the other hand, it's all about supply and demand, and that's, that's the true aspect of it. But what you don't want to have happen is have that shrink and then get in the stagflation stuff and have the economy go south and then see the same thing on housing sales and commercial sales, because that would be devastating to our sector too. Well, and when you were on last, you talked about how with refis that were projected to decrease, we're now in those lower levels, or at least on the front end of those lower levels. You talked about how lenders would be looking to find more margin in each deal because of the squeeze that's coming on the refi side. And I saw a study the other day that shows, interestingly, that a RON transaction, RON transactions are saving on average $444 per transaction for lenders. Yet, we're not seeing lenders widely adopt RON in any new ways or any large scale ways uh, for speaking of most lenders anyway. So do you see that coming on as a greater way for lenders to have more greater margins or what? Man, I don't know if I can. I love remote online organizations. I think it's technology. It's time for it. It's brilliant. It works. 
You know, I bought a, my wife and I, we bought a property in 2019 in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Contracted, purchased, and closed it with DocuSign and re- remote online notarization. How about that? And, you know, five-minute closing is pretty hard to beat. And that means everyone won on that transaction because brokers didn't have to show up. I mean, it was a clean sweep. Now, what is going to happen as our lending industry contracts? No doubt there's going to be some lenders that gain market share. They're going to be the most competitive, the most effective, the most efficient. And uh, so I think you, you, know, always, you always have a chess match going on when you have contractions going on across the industry and, and expansions too. But when the contraction comes, there's big winners coming out of that and a lot of losers. Well, one of the things that sort of everybody in the real estate marketplace has been waiting to see is a deal that was done with remote online notary, maybe under some emergency authorization in the state because of the pandemic. They've been waiting to see those get challenged to see how the, you know, how the courts are, are ruling on these notes. But at the same time, during the pandemic, the courts were doing their proceedings online. And so I think if you're going to challenge the validity of one, it would almost inherently challenge the validity of all these things that have gone on in courtrooms for the last, in virtual courtrooms for the last 18 months. And it, I don't know that that's a can of worms that the bar is ready to take on. What do you think? No, I, I hadn't thought about that, but I think you're exactly right on that. If they were to say that those remote online notarizations and remote work, legal work that was done and what have you are not proper, then like you said, the whole court system, the kind of the box worms falls out real fast. Either you can give an oath and get a testament online or you can't, right? Right. I had to, I had to travel on a trip last year where I was going. You had to get, of course, a COVID test to get there. And they actually are doing COVID tests that you can get. American Airlines has a company that they, that you ship, they ship it to you. It's just like remote online notarization. They ship it to you, sign on, you show them your ID card. They watch you take the swab test. You put it in the vial, you, you, you seal the package, and within an hour, they pick it up by one of the express delivery services. Man, that's pretty cool. Don't even have to leave your own home to do something that really, you used to have to go to the, the medical facilities and what have you and staying in line and kind of cool. That is kind of cool. <laughs> well, we're hopeful that, by the way, that same study showed that Iran transaction was saving the the closing agent 100 bucks a deal. So if it's saving the lender 444 and it's saving the title or as a closing company 100 bucks, uh, which one could argue should or will not pass on to the consumer at some point. But to your point about the convenience factor of it, and uh, I think that, that those savings are going to be a key element in lender in the lending community being more amenable to these things because you know we hear the customers want it if they know it's an option the realtors want it if they know it's an option but nobody of course can can step on the lender's toes and lenders have just been very cautious about it probably because they were so busy with refis right that's not the time that they're really going to adopt they don't have a demand problem but as things start to to shrink up that might be some ways for people to find some more room in the in the transactions all the way around. You know, I think what we're going to see is uh, digital everything, digital mortgages, digital title policies, all that type of thing coming into play. And the quicker we go to an all digital transaction, the better it's going to be. It's going to be faster, quicker. We got to work smarter, not harder. And that's one of the many ways to do that, digitally speaking. 
Thanks, Ted, for that wonderful information. I know our listeners will join us back in two weeks for, well, yep, I'm going to say it, the rest of the story. Until next time, I hope spring has found you in your corner of the world and that you're able to get out and enjoy some of it. If you're one of the listeners who has told us they listen to the podcast while you're on the treadmill, well, first, we salute you. And second, we hope that when you take notes, you're doing it safely. None of us needs a tragic treadmill mishap story to tell. And finally, take a big breath and pull your shoulders back. Go confidently today because what you do really matters.